Hi, welcome back to the podcast. This is attorney James Betzold. Today, we're going to be speaking with attorney Sabrina Damast. She was very generous with her time and gave us some of her unique perspective on the immigration court uh, since she actually was a clerk for an immigration judge early on in her career. The show today is brought to you by Prima Fasci. Prima Fasci is the immigration professional's preferred tool for auto-filling forms, managing the case, and assembling the package to send to immigration or to file with the immigration court or whatever tribunal you're dealing with. So we all know you have to auto-fill the forms, and it's easier and faster if you auto-fill them with a system. Uh, you reduce errors, you can change things across multiple forms more quickly, and what we've done over the last four years is we've built the best autofilling system for immigration forms. Uh, we also have what's called reverse autofill, where you can type the information for your client directly into the form, and it'll save it in the right place in the database, so the next time you need to go use that in a form or document, you have it in your database already. Uh, of course, there's managing the case where you have to set up your tasks and you want to track what step the case is in. So we have our case flows, we have checklists, client portal, tools to share forms with your clients so they can upload documents right to the case as well. And then there's the final product you need to assemble. So what we found is that, especially in preparing EOIR cases uh, or any USCIS case where you have a lot of exhibits in addition to the forms, we needed a solution where you could upload or organize your forms, addendums, and all the different exhibits you wanted to add. And we had to be flexible because no two cases are identical. But a place to upload those, put them in order, automatically generate a table of contents with page numbers, exhibit numbers, and to paginate or put a page number, a Bates number, on each page of the forms and exhibits as well. So we have that built into the system. It's really easy to use. Find a free trial at primafasinow.com. There's a 15-day free trial. Isn't that a good deal, Summer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you heard it right here. So Summer is, this is 100% Summer approved, right? And I got a dolly. And you got a dolly? Show us the dolly. Why the dolly? rainbow. And this is pink. And this is blue. And this is yellow. And what happens when you push the button? You push the button. Colors come out. Oh, it lights up. That's pretty cute. All right. Thank you so much for your input. I'm attorney James Betzold. Enjoy the show. I forgot to mention, we also, with Sabrina, we talked about uh, Habeas petitions based on the COVID-19 scare. Jimmy, what do you think about the COVID-19? He doesn't believe it's great. He thinks it's great we're talking about it, obviously. So, thanks. This is part of working from home, right? Have a great day. Enjoy the show. Hi. I'm attorney James Betzold. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm joined today by immigration attorney Sabrina Damast. Welcome, Sabrina. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for joining us. I mean, so what we've been doing is talking a lot with immigration attorneys who have been, uh, well, first of all, who have a lot of experience and second of all, have taken cases in federal court. So thank you for joining us today. I know that when uh, we sort of share the stories about what we've done and what we can do and what can be done, it sort of gives the rest of us courage to go and take those federal cases when USCIS or the State Department or someone, some agency is just not treating our clients right. So thank you for joining us. It's a huge collaborative effort we're making. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Sabrina, let's start out by going just a little bit over like what was law school like? Where'd you go to law school? What was your first job? 
let's take it from there. So I went to Cardozo School of Law. It's in New York. It's part of Yeshiva University. Um, I loved law school and I loved being in New York. I always felt like going to college and law school in New York was sort of the city was its own education beyond what you were learning in the classroom. Um, my first job after law school was with the Department of Justice in the Attorney General Honors Program. I was an attorney advisor in the Los Angeles Immigration Court, which basically means I was a law clerk for the immigration judges there, doing their research, helping them to draft their opinions. Okay, so when you're working for an immigration judge, um, I mean, what was the work like? I mean, now obviously you're doing, you're in private practice. So you know what it's like to defend the immigrants who show up at immigration court and are looking for help. What was it like being on the other side of the table? Well, it wasn't quite the other side of the table. Um, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't Homeland Security. Totally neutral so. arbitrator of the situation. Exactly. Um, you know, we're very, at DOJ, we're very careful to be the neutral arbitrators, arbiters and not the prosecutors. Um, it was really a great first job. I mean, the level of education that you receive as a law clerk for a judge is really unparalleled. I spent two years seeing the full range of cases that come through an immigration court asylum, cancellation of removal, adjustment of status, waivers for crimes, waivers for fraud. Um, I was there when the Supreme Court, you know, was issuing decisions on crimmigration issues, on uh, the returning residents and when they could be charged with inadmissibility for old crimes and when they couldn't be. I mean, it, the level of, of in-depth knowledge that I was able to obtain, I think pretty much outstrips any other job I could have had at that stage of my career. That has to be just like, uh, I don't want to cheapen it, but it sounds like a crash course, like where you get everything all at once, oh, yeah. every day, 70 types of cases. And then. I'm, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I once looked at my conflicts list and saw that I worked on over 200 cases in two years. Wow. Yeah. That's phenomenal. And what a great way to get experience because it's, it's like, as a, I mean, as a private attorney, you must always have uh, clients coming in with these questions where. If you hadn't had that experience, you really wouldn't know where to start, maybe. A hundred percent. I would have, I mean, at after I left DOJ, I worked for another attorney for a year, which was really a great way to put together the level of academic knowledge that I had of, of what the laws were and what the cases said and actually how you represent someone in court, how you compile an asylum application, right? How you draft a declaration. Um, and I think without both of those experiences, I would not have been able to go into solo practice and start taking on complicated removal defense cases because I just wouldn't have known where to start with researching which waiver was applicable or what the immigration consequence was of a particular conviction. Yeah. And for, for any attorneys out there who might be listening, who maybe um, are new or sort of focus in one area. In my opinion, there's like a few different types of immigration attorneys. There's the ones that will purely fill out the application and submit it to USCIS. And that's like where- Transactional work. Transactional work. Yeah, that's their specialty. Yeah. That's what they're good at. They like doing it. They want to do that and nothing else. So that's what they do. And then there's the immigration attorneys who wander into removal defense court. <laughs> hopefully <laughs> not me. wandering and hopefully they know where to go. Right, we know which courtroom we're headed for. Um, and then there, when someone's like, when someone's in danger of getting removed, Many of those things that apply in the transactional sense also apply there, plus yeah. more in the yeah. context of removal defense or have special rules or provisions. Even a VAWA case, there's VAWA cancellation, which doesn't exist unless you're in removal court. In removal proceedings, absolutely. Yeah. And, then there's, uh, and then there's the type of immigration attorneys who will also wander into federal court. 
which we will also it be getting into a little <laughs> it took me a few more years to graduate from wander into immigration court to wander into federal district court. Um, I think for people who do removal defense, there's there is something of a natural progression to doing circuit court appeals because that's the direct line of appeals from immigration court, right? You have immigration court, board of immigration appeals, and then whatever your circuit is. Um, and while some lawyers don't want to do that because they know the federal circuits have more formal rules and deadlines and procedures. There's a, quite a few people who still do that in the removal defense uh, you know, community, but the people that are willing to wander into district court to do habeas petitions and um, Administrative Procedure Act cases and de novo naturalization is a much, much smaller part of that removal defense community. And I really only joined it at all a couple of years ago and, and with any regularity in the last year. Yeah, and that's so funny because that is, I've talked to a lot of other attorneys about this now, and there's a few who've been doing it for decades. But there's a lot now who are like, nope, I have to start. I had to start. So I started. That's exactly um, what it was. My first case a couple of years ago, it was like, if I don't do something in federal court, my client's going to be on a plane tomorrow to his country of origin. And everything is all the other best laid plans, the motion to reopen, the motion to vacate, all the things that I was still trying to get done for him. We're going to go to ruin. Um, and, and then in the last year or so, I think most of us have experienced such frustrating decisions out of U.S. citizenship and immigration services or such complete disregard for the safety of our clients who are in immigration detention that we've just felt that we don't have any choice but to go into district court and challenge these government actions. So I'm looking on your website and I see a laundry list of your activities, things you've done, trainings you've put on, uh, activities that you sponsored, things you've been involved with with AILA. Uh, so Sabrina is a very active attorney in the AILA community. In fact, tell us a little bit about uh, your work with the annual conference this year. So I, I am the chair of the due process, the litigation track, essentially, for the AILA annual conference for 2020. Um, you know, we have, we've had to move it online because of the coronavirus situation, but uh, I had the great uh, privilege and opportunity to work with the lawyers that were drafting those panels, that were recruiting speakers, um, it's a ton, it was a ton of fun for me. I was on the due process committee last year, but not chairing it. Um, and I've been a speaker at the, um, at the conference five or six times now. So it's, you know, it, it's really been a great way to stay involved in the national level organization. It really is a Herculean undertaking to go from, oh, we're going to have this awesome, huge live event to, okay, somehow we got to get it all on the internet. And it has to work and the internet can't right. go down. <laughs> right. So we have to make sure that all the people that were available in the third week of June are now available in July instead. Then we have to make sure that we have whatever the technological setup is, which thankfully I didn't have to be involved in and in figuring out how to run simultaneous webinars. Um, and I didn't, so I thankfully I didn't have to be involved in the tech side, but I did have to be involved in figuring out, you know, which of these panels um, are best suited for that format. We also had the opportunity to pick a couple of panels that might be good pre-recorded webinars for people that they could watch later at their own um, at their own discretion. But it's it's a lot different planning uh, thought process than the in-person conference because at the in the in-person conference we know that there's going to be you know four four or five tracks going at once that people are going to bounce between tracks that it's okay if there's a little bit of overlap between this track on the family side and this track on the due process side because. People are, there's going to be enough people to go to both. You know, when you're going online and you have a much smaller number of panels, you want to be a lot more conscientious about 
making sure that you don't have panels overlapping necessarily with the same content or panels competing for the same audience um, when you can't have the same content at more than one time. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like right now inside Ayla with everybody, you know, trying to get that all organized. But I'm sure they're going to do a great job. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to provide as much value to attorneys as it always does. And that, I think that's one of the reasons why I encourage attorneys, if they're practicing immigration, to definitely join Ayla. They have so Absolutely. many good resources. And I've even seen, um, uh, what is it, Ayla University now, how they've mm -hmm. really gotten into videos and training so that maybe attorneys who couldn't find a mentor or don't have one in their area can get on there and they can start learning about the different types of things, including, I, I saw they just released their removal defense uh, series. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I was on their, uh, what was it called? Their online curriculum review committee, which was, I think, sort of the first, um, you know, the first set of people that were trying to make their online programming um, really good. Like I was, I was working more on the updating and the paralegals course that they had at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but this was sort of like the predecessor to the official ALU launch, but it's definitely uh, a goal of ALA's to, to make their online educational presence really superb. And that's, that's very exciting. I'm so happy for that. I wish I had that when I was first starting out. I remember, oh my gosh, going, through, yes. I remember going through ALA link and I would be like, all right, let's look at the index of all the books. Where do we start? <laughs> Let's read Kurt's pants. <laughs> I mean, and I left, you know, when I left the immigration court, I was so spoiled because I had a bookshelf in my office of INAs going back to the 80s, right? Like, I didn't have to struggle with, like, the Westlaw historical databases and, you yeah. know, to figure out if the wording of the provision was the same in pre-97 land as post-97 land. I had it right there on my bookshelf. And then when I left and it, you know, it was like, oh wait, you mean you don't have a complete collection of INAs for the last 30 years in this office? <laughs> Actually, my the person I worked for had been practicing since the 80s. So she had a couple of old ones too in the office. Um, oh, wow. But certainly I don't have any 1980s INAs in my office now. So being able to have really good legal research online is so important. Super important. All right, well, I'm, I'm very anxious and excited to hear more about uh, habeas corpus. What can you tell us about habeas petitions as it relates to immigration, how do you use those? So habeas petitions are generally being used to challenge ICE's decision to detain people. Um, right now, we have a lot of habeas related litigation going on because of the coronavirus situation, the COVID-19. For anybody who's watching, that's my two-year-old daughter. She's come to join us in the background. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, everyone. Um, so you know the obvious- Don't be sorry. It happens to me all the time. I'll be like in the middle of a consult with a client and all of a sudden they hear, daddy, what's going on? I mean, she's like, really cute. So honey, you know, I'm on an appointment doing... right now. Mm. I don't I care. Right? She'll look at me. Sit like, on your lap. Not my problem. <laughs> you know, I'll, sh I'll share a quick cute war story before going Please. back to PBS, yeah. right? When she was about eight months old, I had her in the office. And I was doing a consultation with a woman whose husband had unfortunately been detained by ICE and was in uh, the Avalanche Detention Center. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and so she was clearly distraught, right? Her husband had been taken away. They had a teenage daughter at home. Um, there was, you know, it was traumatic. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, I think you could use the baby, you know? <laughs> so I handed her my daughter <laughs> and she held her for a few minutes and it, you know, it brought her some, you know, you, you get those happy baby noises like you're hearing right now in the background and it makes everything better. And then I took her back and I continued the consultation. She was sitting on my lap and she spit up all over my black work pants in the middle of the consultation because she was eight months. Okay. 
took a tissue, wiped my pants down, continued and finished our consultation. Um, but it was it was definitely a toddler, well, toddler and a baby still moment at that point. And now that we're work, uh, working from home so much because of the coronavirus situation, she crawls up into my lap. She streaked naked across a Zoom networking event that I was participating in. She just jumped on me, stark naked. And I was like, well, you're two. So, you know, oh hopefully goodness. everybody recognizes that this is okay. Well, anyway, it's always amazing to me. Um, I mean, first of all, I think the number of like female immigration practitioners far outweigh the number of male ones. And one of the few areas of law that I think women dominate. Especially, yeah. Especially. And then pairing that with being a mom on top of it. God bless you. Well, thank you. <laughs> amazing. Um, I introduce her generally as my Cracker Jack law clerk. I mean, I would not be surprised if before kindergarten, she starts spouting things like due process, removability. Mom, we um, should really look at matters of fees on this one. <laughs> so, um, but habeas petitions, as you were asking me before. Yeah, um, so there is a lot of individual litigation going on about whether or not the conditions in immigration detention centers right now, which are so dangerous because of coronavirus, in fact, violate people's constitutional rights. And this is going on both at an individual level and also a class action level. So several um, of the ACLU organizations and other large nonprofits in the California area have filed class action lawsuits on behalf of basically all of the detainees at various immigration detention centers. So we have Adelanto Detention Center, which is in um, Adelanto, which is part of San Bernardino County. That's basically our LA area detention center. Mm -hmm. um, there's a class action called Roman, the Roman versus Wolf et al, I think, being litigated right now. And then also there's one called Zapata Rivas, which is covering all of the detainees at the Yuba County Jail and the Mesa Verde Detention Center, which are both, um, well, they would both been historically Northern California, um, sort of practitioner territory, but Mesa Verde's recently had their removal docket reassigned to a court in downtown LA. So they're kind of becoming, they're kind of becoming an LA area um, detention center now too. <laughs> so with the class actions, how did, how did the ACLU get involved? Was that, uh, I mean, did they take that up on their own accord? Were there complaints from immigration attorneys? I mean, I don't know exactly how they became involved. Um, the one in Northern Northern California, the Zapata Rebus, it's also being litigated, I believe, by the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, which has a very large immigration representation project as part of the services that they provide. Um, so I'm sure that in Northern California, there was a lot of talk amongst both the impact, sort of the impact litigation community and the individual representation community. Down here, the ACLU of Southern California has always been very interested in immigration issues. You know, the the Rodriguez litigation that made it all the way to the Supreme Court over prolonged detention hearings started here with our ACLU um, and is still here with our ACLU. So I don't know if they took it upon themselves or if it was brought to their attention by uh, individual removal defense attorneys. But Adelanto also has a really well-documented history of terrible access to medical care. So I don't think it took anybody a lot of um, you know, much of a leap of logic to realize when the coronavirus outbreak began that Adelanto was going to be a huge problem. I think it's the second largest detention center in the country, I read somewhere, the second largest ICE detention center. Um, and so you pair the huge number of detainees with the rapid spread of coronavirus with the history of terrible access to medical care, and you realize that you have a, you know, a fire waiting to break out, basically. Sure. So let's, let me ask this, because when I went to, uh, you know, when I was in civics class, right, in high school or college, you know, they teach you, you commit a crime, you go to jail. And if you do something, you get detained. 
as an immigrant, you can get detained while you're waiting for a hearing, while you're waiting for a decision, or because ICE picked you up and you don't have papers, so you're just waiting even preliminarily for all that stuff. How is it that we can use the federal court system to say, hey, let my client go, please? I mean, because so, not, it's not like you're asked, it's not like you're trying to prove them wrong. Like, oh, no, they're not here. No. Oh, they no, no. My, right. All the clients that I'm representing in habeas petitions definitely have immigration violations. Sure. But even civil detainees, right, people who are being detained for violations of civil laws like immigration have constitutional rights, right? They have a Fifth Amendment right um, to due process, right, in both substantive and procedural due process, which means they can raise challenges under the Fifth Amendment to whether or not they're essentially being confined in conditions that rise to the level of a punitive detention, right? Or as several of my clients have been detained now for a year or longer without any type of bond hearing before an immigration judge, you can challenge whether or not the Constitution allows uh, you know, what amounts to indefinite civil detention without any kind of hearing on whether or not the person is in fact in danger to the community or a flight risk or otherwise the government has a justification for continuing to detain them. So it's kind of like, and, and I heard you emphasize here that they're being detained civilly. It's a civil detention. It's not a criminal detention. So it's not that they Correct. committed a particular crime and were sentenced to jail or were awaiting right. trial on a crime. It's the immigration well, let's see. Um, it's set up as a civil system. So there's civil punishments. And that's, I think, where in immigration court, they get away with not providing the same type of due process that you get in a criminal court. Because in criminal yeah. court, yeah, they're looking at taking away your rights and putting you in jail. Uh, you, instead, in immigration court, they say it's civil. So the most they're going to do is detain you and then remove you from the country, which is just as bad for many people. I think it's worse for most people. I mean, if you consider the yeah. number of people that walk into criminal court on a petty misdemeanor, a disorderly conduct, maybe a drug possession, right? They're going to walk out on their own recognizance, not paying any bail. Even if they plead guilty, they're going to get community service, fines, probation. Maybe they're going to have to go to drug treatment programs. Many of them may not spend more than, you know, a, a day of pretrial detention, right, before they can get before a judge in custody, you look at people that are in the immigration system, they're not charged with criminal activity, right? They're charged with civil violations. And they could literally be forced out of the country, away from their homes, away from their families, away from their jobs, their home, the, the businesses they own, the properties they own, um, with potentially a lifetime ban on return, depending on what the immigration or criminal history is that the person may have. And they may spend months in an immigration civil detention center while those proceedings get sorted out. I mean, I think the Supreme Court's ancient case law that deportation is not a punishment really um, fails to grasp the way the modern deportation system works. Yeah. And I'll bet the I'll bet a newer Supreme Court, or at least I, we would at least get, a, I think, a minority decision saying, yeah, it's just as bad as a crime and a punishment. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily put my hopes in this particular Supreme Court composition that they're going to recognize. Well, we'll yeah, um, but, I, but I think <laughs> we could get a reliable three or four of them to say, wow, yes, deportation is on the same level as criminal punishments that can be that can be uh, put on someone for for crimes. So you were talking about, you know, people who even on a drug possession charge or things like that, they'll be walking in and walking out of court, right? Right. Most of the day, probably until they get in front of a judge because they have the due process right to that. Well, 
it, it seems like for immigration, it's, we're not dealing with criminal offenses by and large. We're dealing with civil offenses. So it's more like a civil infraction, which in the criminal court, a civil infraction is a speeding ticket. You usually don't even end up in front of a judge, right? A maybe, judge you go, maybe you go to maybe night court with the commissioner. <laughs> yeah. And they, or someone in the office who says, yeah, pay 95 bucks and you're out of here. You're good. Yeah. And instead we're detaining people for months and months and months on a, at a time. Sometimes I no. believe, I believe judge Dana Marks, who's an um, immigration judge in San Francisco and was previously the chair of the immigration judges union was quoted as saying that immigration proceedings are death penalty cases in a traffic court. They are. Yeah. Um, and a lot of which is a pretty are. accurate yeah. assessment. Yeah. Yeah. The danger is that real. So bringing a habeas, uh, habeas corpus petition in federal court. So if you, so you're saying if you can prove that the conditions are punitive or the conditions are, I guess, dangerous to someone's health or well-being, mm -hmm. then the federal court will, what will they do as a remedy then? I mean, that's a good question, right? That's, uh, I think that's a huge part of what's being litigated now. What is the appropriate remedy? Um, many of these cases, the judges are releasing people, but it's a temporary release. I mean, I think there's definitely a contemplation that if and when the, well, hopefully when the coronavirus situation abates and it's not as dangerous to have, you know, hundreds or thousands of people in close quarters in a detention center, that these people may be re-detained, assuming that they haven't successfully and favorably resolved their immigration case before then. Uh, you know, that's a, it's a scary thought in some ways, right? On, in the criminal system, they've also been releasing people, pretrial pre detainees or people that were close to finishing their sentences. And at least, you know, I, at least with the people close to finishing their sentences, I think the assumption is absent in some further criminal violation, they're gonna finish their sentences out of incarceration and they're not thinking they're gonna be re-detained um, in three months or something like that. But in both of the class actions that I've been had clients who are class members and people have been released, there's a definite concern that whenever that class action ends and the judge believes that some appropriate remedy for keeping detention centers systematically has been achieved, right? Keeping them safe systematically has been achieved, mm -hmm. that ICE may be free to re-detain people. Mm -hmm. and we, don't, ICE, we don't know yet. Has ICE taken any proactive steps to release people or release individuals? On small scales, yes. Um, I think last I heard they had identified 700 people nationwide to release of their own accord. Keep in mind that that on any given day of the week, they hold about 30,000 people in ICE detention nationwide. So we're not talking about any um, immense shows of compassion. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. So then in a complaint, when you're filing a complaint for a habeas petition, especially with something like one of these COVID-19 cases, what type of information do you need to include in a habeas complaint so that it sees the light of day? Well, you have the factual part and then you have the legal part, right? So from a factual perspective, you're ideally gonna wanna have a declaration from your client about conditions of confinement. Um, in the in the COVID-19, you know, coronavirus situation, if you're alleging medical vulnerabilities, you're gonna wanna have some sort of medical records, hopefully, you know, your client has diabetes, your client has a heart condition, asthma, whatever it is that puts them at an increased risk of harm. Um, if you're, if you're able to get a medical professional who can kind of opine on, well, if indeed these folks are, you know, three to a room and they're only three feet apart in their beds and in the common areas, they're only a foot apart in line for food, right? These are the risks that, and the medical risks that attach to that. That's also great. Although I think most folks are filing 
without medical experts at this point, in part because the first few cases, both class action and individual, did have those, and the courts are well aware now. And I don't think there's a single judge who's questioning the danger in which a person um, in detention faces, you know, an increased risk of transmission of coronavirus at this point. Um, as a legal matter, you need to plead what your claims are, right? So the Fifth Amendment can be violated and there's multiple theories, right? There's a state-created doctrine theory. There's the theory of, you know, conditions rising to levels of punitive um, incarceration. Um, so there's different ways to plead a Fifth Amendment violation. And then if you also have a non-coronavirus argument, right? For example, that your client's detention has become unconstitutionally prolonged, then you need to plead that also. Um, but that's that's what it is, right? It's a factual background and a set of pleadings. I mean, if everybody remembers first year civil procedure, right? You have to, and the Twombly, Twombly case and then Iqbal came down while I was in law school, right? Which sort of upped the game a little bit, but you basically have to plead sufficiently specific facts to put the other party on notice of what you're saying they did wrong. I think that was the standard. I might be paraphrasing. <laughs> okay, so then when, ah, sorry, I just drew a blank. I had a really good question. Uh, let's see. It'll come back to you. It was about, right. Okay. So it was, a... oh, you know, I think you answered it because I think I was going to ask how specific do you need to be? Oh, are there any, I got it. Are there any of these detention facilities that already have outbreaks or yes. you have to wait for there to be an outbreak before you file a habeas claim? No, certainly you don't have to wait. And certainly, yes, there are. So the OTA, so the ICE is keeping a website where they're actually listing each detention center that has either a detainee that's been confirmed with COVID-19 or an ICE employee. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind there. The numbers, they have they have only tested about 2,500 people, 2,500 detainees nationwide out of the 30,000, um, right? Of that, almost 50% of them have tested positive. So they're like 1,200 and change. So 30%? obviously- 50%. 50% of those wow. tested, right? So they've tested, I mean, well, I can tell you right now, I'll bring up the, I'll bring up the latest statistics and we can look at the numbers while we're talking. I mean, that's staggering. Last, like every other person. It's so insane. If you're sharing right. a cell with someone, you're going to get it. So as of May 23rd, the detained population nationwide was 25,911. So we'll call it 26,000. Now, since they began testing, which was almost, I think it was the end of March, so two months ago, they have only tested 2,535 detainees. Now, keep in mind that some number of those people are no longer in ICE custody of that 2,500, right? So it's not 2,500 out of 25,000 where, you know, they can say, what is that, 10%? Um, it's 2,500, including a whole bunch of people that are no longer in that 25,000 total because they've been released or deported. Of the 2535, they have 1,312 confirmed cases. So they're looking at an over 50% infection rate of the people that have actually been tested. In addition to that, they've got 44 confirmed cases of ICE employees at detention centers that have coronavirus. Now, what's striking to me about that number is that it doesn't include contractors. So for example, two of those three detention, well, the three detention facilities that I named for you, right, in California, Adelanto, Mesa Verde and Yuba, right? The vast majority of employees working there are not ICE, right? The majority of people working at Mesa Verde and Adelanto are employees of the private prison group GEO, because that's who runs them. And Yuba County Jail is a sheriff's facility. So they're not reporting, as far as I can tell, on GEO employees that may have it. 
or on Yuba County Sheriff employees that may have it. And those are the people that are actually staffing the, the facilities on a daily basis. I think the majority of ICE employees that actually work at these detention centers are probably the deportation officers that mostly I think sit in their offices. Um, so it's really not a particularly good indicator of what kind of you know employee to detainee transmission might be going on and vice versa because they're not providing statistics and i think the people that have the most daily contact with the the detainees um boy i'd like to think that once they find out you know if someone's got that that they send them home and say hey you're off work for a little bit is that have you heard anything to the contrary of that i mean even if that's true though we already know that coronavirus that's such an incubation period can be you know transmitted by asymptomatic carriers right yeah so what good does it do if you have the if you're an employee and maybe maybe you don't develop symptoms for four or five days you could have transmitted it in those four or five days or maybe you don't develop symptoms at all right they've we think they've been having some reports of people who basically have such mild symptoms that they don't even take notice of it you could be going to work every day for a month and you know for some period of that time everyone transmitting it to everybody exactly i mean the conditions inside of a detention center are just terrible in terms of preventing the, the transmission of a virus like this. Yeah, it's such a robust virus. I mean, the fact that you don't know who has it, the fact that some people are asymptomatic. Right. You're dealing with yeah. people crammed together in small quarters to begin with. Right. Um, I mean, really, because of the asymptomatic carrier um, aspect of the situation, there's no way that uh, temperature checks and things like that are going to be sufficient to prevent That's transmission. Barely a band-aid, barely a band-aid. Not even. Right. You really need, like we're like we're being advised to do on the outside, six feet apart, wear a mask when you're in public, right? Um, wash your hands all the time, right? These are not things that a detainee can necessarily do. In fact, really, they can't. They don't have the ability to stay six feet apart at all times from one another um, because almost all of them are being either detained in sleeping quarters with somebody else or their meal times are with other people, things like that, where you, you don't have a choice but to remain within a six foot radius of others. Yeah. So, okay, looks like the court's trying to figure out the right way to, to give remedy with that. Sometimes they're releasing individuals. Are there any alternative remedies that they're giving? So uh, in the Roman litigation for Atalanta, the original preliminary injunction, which unfortunately has been stayed by the Ninth Circuit, right? So it's the order of the judge has now been paused by a higher judge or set of judges, I should say. Um, so it never really went into effect. You know, it was only like a 36 hour window between the issuance and the, a higher court pausing it. But it not only ordered that um, ICE bring, so it, it basically ordered ICE to bring down the population at Adelanto to a level at which people could stay six feet apart. It didn't specify what that was. But in addition to that, it required providing personal protective equipment to detainees, having the common areas professionally cleaned, um, you know, to the extent possible, basically implementing all of the protective measures that we on the outside have been advised to follow to prevent transmission of COVID-19. Hmm. So, but yeah, that, that really requires them to cut their detainee levels to, you know, from their perspective, unprecedentedly low levels. Can the federal judge ever say, all right, I'm ordering that the immigration judge hold a bond hearing, even though this person's a mandatory mandatory detention or something like that? Yes. So that's typically, if you're doing a prolonged detention claim, that's typically the remedy you're going to get is a bond hearing with an immigration judge or maybe an alternative order, right? ICE 
I shall release this person within 10 days unless they provide them with a hearing before a neutral arbiter, which is basically a bond hearing. Um, but that's particularly tricky in coronavirus cases because the immigration judges don't really have the authority to consider whether or not your conditions of confinement are unconstitutional or presenting a significant risk of medical harm to you, right? What, what are the things that we consider in an immigration bond hearing? Are you a danger to the community? Are you a flight risk? Neither of those things really take into account. Are you diabetic and therefore at a much greater risk of harm if you contract COVID? So how often is it, I mean, maybe you've seen when you were working at the immigration court where a federal court says, all right, we agree. The immigration judge needs to hold a bond hearing. But then the immigration judge says, yeah, sure, we'll hold a bond hearing. Bond denied. It happens all the time. Um, I mean, and that's part of this, the way the system is set up, right? If you're, so if you're making a prolonged detention claim, you're basically arguing a procedural violation, right? I have not been provided with sufficient procedural protections to evaluate whether or not I should be locked up, right? What is a procedure to determine if you get locked up? It's a bond hearing. The judge's order isn't going to say anything about the outcome of that bond hearing, right? Just what procedure is due to you. Now, the coronavirus situation presents what we what we was being referred to as substantive due process violations, right? They're basically not saying you're not being given procedures to protect you, right? Legal procedures that protect your rights. It's just that the conditions in which you are existing um, at government order are in fact unconstitutional, um, and so. I think most folks litigating these are saying a bond hearing is not sufficient, right? Because a bond hearing can't take into account unconditional constitu uh, un unconstitutional conditions of confinement. And the only remedy is to simply order the release of somebody from those. Or perhaps in the, you know, the vein of Judge Hatter's order in the Roman litigation, try to change the conditions of confinement by ordering, you know, professional cleaning, lower levels of detention, personal protective equipment, things like that. But it's not, and it's not a bond hearing before an immigration judge that's going to make a difference in whether or not there's a Fifth Amendment violation as it relates to punitive detention. So outside the, <clears throat> excuse me, outside the scope of the COVID nineteen habeas petitions, have you seen um, other habeas petitions that were successful where the judge, where the federal judge didn't say go for a bond hearing, but instead said, "Yeah, I'm releasing you." No, uh, outside of COVID-19. So at least in the cases that I've worked on, mm -hmm. all of the judge just releasing you um, and not or, you know, and not saying or in the alternative of bond hearing within a prescribed period of time have been COVID-19 um, related cases. I mean, the, the other uh, the other hideous case that I worked on, you know, pre-COVID a couple of years ago involved the legality of deporting somebody who had a pending motion to reopen at the BIA. Was this the first one that you were that you mentioned earlier? Yes, it Great. was one of that those. Was crazy the next one I wanted to ask about. Tell me about the federal case that made your blood boil and made you say, "I'm going to federal court." Yeah, I had. I mean, I literally had no idea what I was doing. Um, it's a good thing I managed to figure it out, and I had good mentors because I had never been to federal court. So I had a client. Um, he was a lawful permanent resident, a green card holder. He had committed a crime that was an aggravated felony. Um, by the time, well, when he first came to me, I was uh, like really pregnant. Uh, I think I was eight months pregnant. He had just been released on a Rodriguez bond. He had lost his case before the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals. I helped him file pro se a Ninth Circuit petition for review. 
Um, but I told him, look, what you you're not going to win this case at the Ninth Circuit. Like everything that the that the Board of Immigration Appeals said is correct. What you need is post conviction relief. You need to get rid of this conviction that you have. Um, it's really your only path forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. He went his way. I didn't hear from him. You know, a couple months goes by. I go from very pregnant to in labor. Um, and I recall being at the hospital in labor and getting an email from his sister saying that he had been detained by the sheriff on a warrant that had been issued from before he had been taken into ICE custody. So he had gone into custody, pled to a low-level drug possession offense, and gone straight back into ICE custody again. Finally, at some point, I actually get hired for the post-conviction relief while he's in custody. We're working on it. Nobody ever filed anything at the Ninth Circuit. They terminate his temporary stay of removal, and ICE starts the process of getting travel authorization for him. I filed a motion to reopen with the Board of Immigration Appeals based on changed country conditions in the hopes that I might get a stay of removal or I might slow down the deportation officer a little bit, you know. Um, But eventually, and eventually I get the post-conviction motion filed and we have a hearing scheduled. And he's coming up on another six months of detention and he's going to, I file for and receive a hearing date for another bond hearing with the immigration judge. Um, If I remember right, it was the same week we had a bond hearing scheduled for Thursday and a hearing in his post-conviction relief on Friday. No, I guess maybe it was the following week because Friday ended up being in district court. Um, On Monday, I get a call or maybe the previous Friday, I get a call from the client. This previous Friday says they're going to deport me on Monday or on Tuesday. All right. They've told me they've set a date Tuesday. I'll be on the plane. I called the deportation officer. I'm like, really? I have a bond hearing for him on Thursday. You're going to deport him two days before his bond hearing? You know, and the the deportation officer just didn't care. The Board of Immigration Appeals denied the stay of removal. So I filed a combination habeas and mandamus, a mandamus to try to force the Board of Immigration Appeals to issue a decision on the motion to reopen because either they would grant it and then he would never remove order or they would deny it. But I could take a Ninth Circuit appeal and get another stay Um, and a habeas to try to prevent them from deporting him until the Board of Immigration Appeals acted on the motion to reopen. I filed on Monday. I remember I was at a swing dance party with my husband that night. Seven o'clock, I get an email that the district court has signed what I would call a temporary, temporary restraining order, which was a temporary restraining order until we could have a hearing on Friday on a temporary restraining order. Um, (laughs) So like literally Tuesday morning, they've already moved him to what we call B18, which is the space under the federal building in downtown LA where they stage people for deportation. They'd moved him from the detention center in Orange County to B18 to bring him to the plane. When I finally, you know, I finally get somebody to see my email and they write back, okay, yes, we're in receipt of the TRO. We're sending him back to the detention center. Ultimately, the judge in the federal court did not agree with me that he had any authority to block the, um, the, de- the removal order pending the Board of Immigration Appeals making a decision. But he thought the Ninth Circuit could provide what I wanted. I didn't think that was right, but what he wanted. So he said, I'll extend the TRO for the 14 days that I can under the federal rules of civil procedure, you know, without, you know, granting it on the merits. You go do what I want you to try at the Ninth Circuit. And if it doesn't work, I was like, if it doesn't work, we'll be back here again, won't we? So in that 14 days, I filed an emergency motion with the Ninth Circuit. They agreed with me that they couldn't give me what I wanted. I filed to go back into court with the judge. But in the meantime, we had the Rodriguez bond hearing. He got out on bond. And within a couple of weeks, we had a few more hearings on his post-conviction motion. It was granted. He withdrew his plea. 
And I supplemented the motion to reopen at the board with proof that he was no longer deportable and asked for termination. Um, and so even though ultimately the judge denied my uh, stay of removal request, he got out of custody through other means. And eventually the board reopened. Bought you enough time to do it. Exactly. I just needed that 48 hours to get the bond hearing and get, you know, he had the hearing on Thursday. I went to federal court on Friday and I think the family posted bond on Monday. Um, and that was all I needed. I just needed from Tuesday morning when they were planning to deport him until the following week to get him out on bond. And then everything else could work at the usual snail's pace that immigration courts work at. So it sounds like, and I mean, from looking at your website, you do a fair amount of post-conviction relief in California. I do. It's a pretty, it's a, it's a growing part of the practice right now. Um, California has really generous post-conviction relief laws, which means that we can really, we can very often get something good for our clients. Not always, but often. So for example, here in Michigan, uh, used to be that, you know, like we would file the Padilla case or a Padilla motion with the court, but eventually decision came out where it said, well, if it was before the Padilla decision, then, then no. there's nothing well, retroactive. The thing itself was back in what, the seventies? Oh, I no, couldn't have been because he brought the challenge into the Supreme Court got the case in 2010. Couldn't have been that long. The, the was, criminal, his criminal conviction, though, I think that was back in the seventies. Was it? Wow. I guess it's possible because we all know that much we all know longer later you, he got arrested, right? Right. I was going to say, we all know that it could take ice decades to try to put you in removal because of the conviction. So I guess it could have been the seventies. Yeah. So I guess for anyone listening who practices or lives in California, what are, what are some of the provisions under California post-conviction relief that, that you can use? Well, so um, prior to 20, what was it, 2016, I think, um, the only statutory provision we had was 1016.5, which is basically that the criminal court judges are required either verbally or in writing on a plea form to give very general immigration warnings, right? Same thing to everybody, no individual case analysis. Um, so if you had a pre-2010, uh, if well, not so much pre-2010, but the, so you had, that was one statutory basis if those warnings were not given. Um, you, ineffective assistance of counsel had at that time been limited by the California appellate and I think Supreme Court to cases in which somebody was still on parole or probation, right? Still in some sort of constructive custody so that you could file a habeas. Um, which meant that most of our clients were out of luck in making an effective assistance of counsel claims because most of the time they came to us way beyond the time when they were finished probation or parole. Mm -hmm. There was a, a trend for a while of non-statutory motions to vacate, which I think was mostly a mechanism that people tried to make up um, in order to fill this gap that we had of people who did get the court warnings but weren't advised on an individual level and but were already off probation or parole. Um, thankfully, the legislature passed another statute, 1473.7, that went into effect, I think it was January 1, 2015, or maybe 2016, and then was amended um, effective January 1st, 2019, to make clear that, um, so the, what the statute did originally was allow you to raise any kind of claim, even if you were off probation or parole. In fact, you have to be off probation or parole. So it's basically fills the, the gap after your habeas jurisdiction would expire. Mm -hmm. um, and then the amendments made clear that the, did not require an ineffective assistance of counsel finding. Um, that you could bring other legal errors up, um, including last year, the a couple of appellate courts wrote some really good decisions explaining that you could have an error by counsel that was short of a Sixth Amendment violation, 
that would still count as a legal error for the purposes of a motion to vacate. So usually the, the first case really involved just sort of the lawyer kind of half got it wrong and then the, the client sort of made up the other half on his own imagination about the immigration consequences. Right. The, the attorney said, oh, well, you know, I thought if it was uh, reduced later on to a misdemeanor and expunged, it would be OK. And the client said, well, I thought if I didn't serve any jail time, it was going to be OK. Neither of which, you know, I think it involved a drug crime, if I remember right. So neither of which were at all correct. Um, and there was no legal basis for either of those assertions. And so the appellate court said, look, maybe it wasn't an effective assistance of counsel, but it, you know, it contributed to the defendant's subjective misunderstanding mm. of the immigration consequences of his plea. And then later on, the next court even took it one step further. And they said, you had a case in which the defense attorney was deceased. So the defense attorney didn't say anything about what he did or didn't advise the client. And the client said, look, he didn't tell me it was going to make me lose my green card or prevent me from getting a green card or whatever the situation was. And they said, look, we don't even have to inquire, they basically said, about what the defense attorney's uh, level of competency was. This defendant had a subjective misunderstanding, and that's a legal error that prevented him. The standard for 1473.7 is a legal error that meet, that prevents the individual from meaningfully understanding, accepting, or defending against the immigration consequences of a conviction, right? So you can kind of look at if you were misadvised about immigration consequences, if there was really like a failure to advise at all, um, and also, if there was a failure by the defense counsel to try to propose alternative pleas that would not have had those immigration consequences. Mm. And there's case law, you know, while the Supreme Court was working out, you know, whether you could bring ineffective assistance of counsel claims up after habeas had expired, um, or, you know, these non-statutory motions to vacate, as they were being called, right? There were places, even going back to the 80s in California's appellate law, that kind of dealt with these issues about what defense counsel had to do. Did they have to try to negotiate an immigration neutral plea or a less damaging immigration plea? Did they have to, um, you know, advise you correctly if you if you inquired about immigration consequences? If you didn't inquire, but they knew you were not a citizen, did they have some sort of independent obligation to investigate? That last one is really the one that um, was the center of controversy uh, between the time 1473.7 was passed and the time it was amended to say you didn't need to find an effective assistance of counsel for pre-Padilla cases, right? It was mm. the, the tricky quote ones were convincing a judge that even if your client didn't specifically ask his attorney, what's going to happen to my green card or am I going to have immigration consequences, that the attorney had some pre-2010 independent obligation to investigate. But now we don't really have, thankfully, we don't really have to deal with that because we know that you don't have to find an effective assistance of counsel in order to grant these motions. So when somebody's granted post-conviction relief in California under the statute, are they subject to being recharged? They can be. I, it's very few cases that I found that the prosecutor wants to pursue. Um, that case where I filed the district court, they want they they sent it back out to the trial department for reprosecution, and so he had to engage criminal defense counsel to then represent him and negotiate a plea that wouldn't have those consequences, which thankfully they were able to do. Yeah. Um, I have had a couple of cases where right there in the courtroom, the DA just says to me, okay, what are you offering instead? Yeah. All right. Uh, so, you know, California has two different domestic violence crimes, domestic battery and corporal injury. Domestic battery is an immigration neutral offense. Corporal injury is a crime of violence, crime of domestic violence, you know, so it's bad. Uh, so sometimes you go in on a, a corporal injury case and you can just say to the DA, he can plead to domestic battery. That'll work. 
Um, then so you resolve it in the same day where they grant the motion to withdraw and your client repleads. I had one case where the client had been charged with uh, possession of a controlled substance with a firearm and while in possession of a firearm. In California, we have this weirdness where our firearm statutes don't contain an exemption for antique firearms. And so they don't match the federal definition of a firearms offense. Mm -hmm. So I was able to go back to the DA and say, I just need to get rid of the drug part. You can keep a firearms conviction. You can have a possession of a firearm. Well, I want it to be the felony one because it was a stolen firearm. I'm like, Fine, felony possession <laughs> of a gun. I don't care. Uh, I was like, I just need you to, we just need to get out the possession of a controlled substance part, right? To a DA, this is like the most ridiculous thing ever because, you know, simple possession of a controlled substance walks through their door and, you know, all the time and nobody thinks it's particularly dangerous. But possession of a stolen firearm, right? So... That's, that was one of that's those a little heavier, <laughs> right? And so it's one of those not uncommon circumstances where you can go to a DA and say, "Look, you can have the more serious criminal offense. I just need to get rid of the drugs." <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I think for prosecuting attorneys or DAs, it can be, I mean, it's perplexing sometimes in different motions that we've brought, saying, "Hey, remember nine years ago when this guy pled to this, or his attorney told him to plead to this? Well, it turns out there's immigration consequences, and he's dealing with that now." We want to withdraw our plea because of this and this and that. And they're like, he already served his jail time. We're like, yeah, we we've know. already expunged the conviction. It's, oh, it's not even a conviction expunged. as far as we're you, concerned. How do you withdraw a plea from a that's case already that's already expunged? Yeah. Why are you doing this, counselor? Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense to them. But for our clients, it makes perfect sense. I had an incredibly I had an incredibly frustrating conversation with a criminal judge over this, right? My client had a, was a permanent resident had been charged with misdemeanor grand theft, right? So grand theft, less than $400, right? Uh, um, his, his, his defense attorney worked out what was, from a criminal perspective, probably a great deal, right? They added a second count of misdemeanor petty theft. And they said, you're gonna do a year, you're gonna plead to both a year probation. You do a, you do a successfully a year of your probation and we'll drop the grand theft, right? We'll mm -hmm. dismiss it. So you'll only have the petty theft. So. I, um, I, he got charged with inadmissibility for two crimes involving moral turpitude, I think, if I remember right, um, when he was returning from a trip abroad. And he didn't have enough time for cancellation of removal. Um, it, there was a stop time issue. So it was going to be like a standalone 212H waiver, but it wasn't a, I don't think it was a great case for hardship. Mm -hmm. So I, I was like, this is easy, right? I, you can keep the, um, the petty theft that you think is the conviction. I just want you to redismiss the grand theft. And so the DA, like I walked in the DA, I was like very confused. And she was like, explain what you want here. I was like, you can keep your petty theft. I just want to redismiss the grand theft that you've already dismissed. But I wanted to say we did it under this other statute. Oh, okay, that's great. I don't oppose, right? Like, like the DA is like, I'm losing nothing. I don't oppose, right? So then we, the judge asks us to come into chambers. And I'm like, your honor, I'm happy to say that people have, are not going to, oh, I don't care what the DA says. How can I dismiss a conviction that's already been dismissed? And I'm like, well, your honor, there's lots of case law that says you can just, you can vacate a plea that was expunged, but this isn't an expungement. We dismissed it. I was like, your honor, I have a declaration from his criminal defense attorney telling you that this wasn't what he negotiated, that he negotiated that judgment should only be imposed on the petty theft. And there was never supposed to be judgment even imposed. On the ground, I don't see how he can say that. That's not what's written in the plea and the okay. It's not what's written, but that's what he says he thought was happening, and therefore what he advised the client. So clearly, 
whether his his understanding was was correct or not, he misadvised the client. I don't. That's not what it says in his declaration. Counsel, I was like, Your Honor, how could you find that this attorney properly advised his client if he's telling you under penalty of perjury that he didn't understand correctly what was happening in court? So this went round and round for like an hour, and then. I told him, I was like, Your Honor, we just got these appellate cases that say his own misunderstanding. Why haven't you printed them for me, counsel? I was like, well, one of them's in my moving papers, Your Honor. Why haven't you printed me copies? And I was like, I really wanted to say we were in his chambers and he was sitting at his desk with a computer, um, like a foot from him. And I really wanted to say, you could print it right now, Your Honor, or if you let me go to your computer, I'll print them. Eventually, what he said was, I will issue a nunk-pro-tunk order on the dismissal back to the original date that he pled because I think that's what everybody planned it to be. And I was like, okay, Your Honor, I just have to think about how to write this really carefully so that there, we can make it that there was never a judgment imposed at all on the, the count that's now being dismissed. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked. It worked. His immigration counsel was able to get it terminated. Let but it words was, to the rescue. <laughs> I just had to like think about... I was like, this should have been so easy. Like you should have just signed the proposed order to vacate the plea. But instead now I have to write out, I was sitting in the hallway, like writing out on my notepad, the language and then texting a picture of it to like a colleague who does post-conviction relief. And I'm like, do you think this will work? I think this should work, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, nunc pro tunc. Do you remember what that stands for? Or what it means? Now for then. Now for that, I was like, My I took family. Latin and I was like, I took Latin in high school. I should be able to know. That's okay. You know, I remember, I, I think I first encountered it in a, I don't know if it was like a family law case or something I came across that was working on over here. And I kept running into this problem where we needed something, but like it had to have happened before. And it was in a small local court, right? So small community, very, very flexible judge. You know, who is this like, sort of like the background? You're like, well, what's the end result we need? This. All right. All right. Is anybody going to appeal it if I do this? Nope. No. Okay. We're going to do this then. <laughs> right. That's the way it's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to spend an hour arguing with the judge when the other side says it's okay to do what you're asking. Yeah. No one's going to appeal. It's, Everyone's happy. On a misdemeanor. It's not illegal. All right. right on a misdemeanor theft conviction from like a decade earlier. Yeah. That's probably... One of the funnest times I've had practicing law was when we're able to do that. You walk in and the judge is like, hey, so what do you want? <laughs> I mean, I of, there was, an, there was a same, same court, different judge. Actually, one of the clerks let me in because they know I'm an attorney. And I go back there and occasionally you talk to the judge before something. Not about the case, not without the other attorney there, whatever. But maybe just introduce yourself. Yeah. And I get back there and I was like, Hey, judge, just wanted to say hi before the hearing. And he looked, this is one of those who's like, he should have been retired like five years before. But he just looks at me and is like, get out of my What are you doing room. in here? I'm like, oh, I'm attorney Batsell. He came in to say hi. And you can't be back here. No one's allowed back here. And I'm like, there's people all around. <laughs> he retired gracefully shortly thereafter. So, <laughs> Thank goodness for small favors. Oh, man. All right. So, well, you know what? That's that's about all the time we have. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all that experience with us. I know that this is going to help other attorneys and even attorneys over, over here in this part of the state, this part of the country, where our detainees are held in the county jail, by and large, and yeah. 
conditions, even on a good day years ago before the whole COVID thing, was terrible. Essentially no access to medical care. I had one client who was legitimately schizophrenic, diagnosed, had medication for it. And he was not getting his medication and he was hearing voices and they were telling them he needed to shave his head. So he grabbed a shaver, a razor, and he had like long hair, kind of like down to here. And the next time I go to visit him, like not literally so that much is missing. Oh no. Just trying to be real sensitive and like, hey buddy, what, what happened? Your haircut. Oh, I was cutting my hair. I'm like, looks like you did something more than that. Yeah, they won't let me have a shaver anymore because I'm not supposed to cut my hair unless there's a barber here. And I'm like, let's talk about your medication. And we had to get powers of attorney sign. Mom was involved, all this stuff. Oh gosh. And that was like one of the major issues we had in his removal hearing was his just like, first of all, his competency. And second, how guilty was he really of the things he did? Because one, his brother was telling him to do it. And two, so were the voices in his head. So, yeah, I know that. I mean, if he were detained right now and if he were, oh boy, he'd be really su- subject to, I think, catching and suffering. For, for sure. Like that. So thank you so much for sharing. We really appreciate you uh, doing this for us and helping to inspire other attorneys in the community who are now realizing that, yep, we need to start going to federal court. This is just going to be part of the way of life for the time being. Yes, I think it is. All right, Sabrina, your website is sabrinadamask.com. You're an immigration yeah. attorney practicing in the state of California. You're in L.A. County? I am. I am in downtown L.A. All right, so other attorneys out there, definitely use her as a resource. Super active in AILA. I'm sure she'd be willing to help you. And if for some reason you're an immigrant and you've come across this podcast or you are in need of immigration representation, she comes very highly recommended. Like thank you, James. 25 star approval rating. So, thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you. it. It was great to visit with you today. Stay safe. Thanks. Bye bye.